read this morning from the scripture in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, a brief section. It'll be up on the screen. You can follow along there as I read. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. This is the Lord's word. You may be seated. God, we thank you for the kindness that you have shown us today in Jesus Christ and the opportunity we have as a body of believers to gather in this place and be reminded again of your goodness and your power, your glory, and your kindness. We pray, God, that as we gather, you would be glorified and you would take joy in your people coming together to remember the work of Jesus. God, we think, though, of uh, folks who are having a rough go of it. I think of Ed. Pray that you'd have your hand on him. Pray for Ron. He's seeking treatment this week that is tough. Him and his wife, Patty. Think of Stephanie as well. Pray, God, you'd have your hand on these and many others who are going through real tough times. God, we pray as we spend a little bit of time in your word that you would change us and make us more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, a relatively brief section of Scripture. want to remind you, importantly, though, that there is no correlation between the length of the passage and the length of the sermon. Some of you, I can see a little hope in your eyes. I wanted to dash that hope as quickly as possible. I don't know if people send postcards anymore when they go on vacation. They just post stuff on the Facebook and send pictures and whatnot on the, on the message uh, apps. But it used to be that if you visited a place on vacation, uh, you didn't say you went to Crater Lake or Yellowstone, or I don't know, can you go to Yellowstone right now? But when you used to, you could go into the gift shop and buy a postcard, and it would have a picture of the place where you are, and you would write on it, if it wasn't printed on the front, wish you were here. Wish you were here, which of course is a lie. If you wanted to... <laughs> If you wanted them there, you would have invited them, obviously, but it seems polite. But, I mean, it, the way, the, what the gesture is saying this, this is nice. We like Old Faithful, or we like Mount Rushmore, or wherever you might be visiting, the Grand Canyon, and this would be so much better if you were here with us. This is good, but it would be better if you were here with us. The idea is something can be good, but just because it's good doesn't mean it's great. And that's the title of the message today, sometimes, sometimes good isn't great. Sometimes good isn't great. And what we're going to learn in this passage is what is great is Jesus, and anything that pulls us away from that isn't. So sometimes good isn't great. The best thing, I'm going to give it away here at the beginning, so that way if I lose you, you don't miss it. The student or the disciple, the learner, in a position of of humble receptivity at the feet of Jesus... That's the best place to be. 
The student or the disciple, humbly listening to and receiving from instruction from Jesus, that's the best place to be. That's the place of fullness. That's the place of joy. That's what's great. Sometimes good isn't great, and it is great to be with Jesus. That's the first thing we need to pay attention to. Look at verses 38 and 39, Luke chapter 10. The setting here is someone's home. In fact, it's Martha's home. We're not sure where this home is, but we know later on, at least, they had a home in Bethany. Martha and her sister Mary, they had a brother. Maybe you've heard of him. His name was Lazarus. And Jesus is invited into Martha's uh, home, and they're going to stay there and uh, experience hospitality. Likely in the home, it's not merely Martha and Mary and Jesus. Likely, it's a whole bunch of people, at minimum, the the 12 disciples, maybe Lazarus, and maybe many, many others. The, the Bible tells us in Luke that many people traveled with Jesus, including other women who supported Jesus from their own means. And so Jesus, along with others, come into Martha's home, and Martha does what a good host would do, is she begins making sure that everybody is comfortable and served with refreshments or food or provided a basin to wash their feet or to freshen up. Uh, their face or put oil on their head, typical uh, measures of hospitality. This is what Martha did, welcomes him into her room. Likely would have had a meal, likely would have spent some time resting, and at this time, it appears, Jesus begins teaching. So here they are, refreshing themselves, enjoying the hospitality of Martha, and Jesus begins uh, teaching. Martha, though, had a sister. You read of her, and you've heard of her. Her name is Mary. And while Martha is busy providing hospitality, as would be expected as the, the uh, home that they were in was her home, Mary, it says, look what it says in verse 39. She had a sister called Mary. That means that's her name. It's not that she had another name, but people called her Mary, and her name is Mary. She sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So you have a group of people likely in a room. Jesus is teaching. Martha is providing them refreshments and whatever else may be needed. And Mary has now settled in at Jesus' feet. This is the position of a disciple. This would be a very typical place for a disciple of a rabbi to be. So if a rabbi called you and said, please follow me and I will teach you to to be like me, the disciple or a follower of that rabbi would typically find themselves sitting at the feet of the rabbi, listening to him teach, likely asking questions, and the rabbi would answer with questions generally. And this is where Mary settles in. She settles in to listen to Jesus, to learn from Jesus, to be challenged by him. If you've listened to Jesus much, maybe you've read the Gospels. Generally, when Jesus is teaching, you are challenged Your preconceived notions are rattled. You're convicted of the sin you've let settle in. There's also encouragement. There's a sense in the presence of Jesus that you've reconnected with what makes you alive because Jesus is the creator of all things. And so this is the setting. Martha is busy serving, and her sister Mary has settled in at the feet of Jesus. And what we're going to discover as the conversation continues in a minute is the best place to be, the place of greatness, is it is great to be with Jesus. That's what's great. And the Bible has been telling this story 
since the very beginning. There are many, item, many times in the Older Testament where we anticipate that the presence of God is the best place to be. One of my favorite places is in 1 Kings chapter 10. I've mentioned this many times before, but some of you might have been sleeping when I mentioned it before. The queen of Sheba is visiting Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10, and this is what it says. It's on the screen. When the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he had offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. Took her breath away. Verse 6, she said this to the king. The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half of it wasn't told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Here, listen to verse 8. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who are continually, who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. So here is Solomon. The room to be in is this room. This is the room that nobody could get into other than Solomon and whoever he let in. And when the queen of Sheba visits, she was jealous of the doorkeeper. Because he got to stand there the whole day and listen to Solomon talk. And, and this is a, an understanding. There's something better than this. Because the promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7 is your son will sit on your throne forever. He was alluding to Solomon, but that ultimately was fulfilled in David's son, Jesus. And now Jesus is sitting in Martha's home teaching, and where's the best place to be? Sitting at Jesus' feet, hearing his wisdom, just like the doorkeepers in Solomon's throne room. To hear what Solomon had to say was a privilege, and to, to sit at Jesus' feet was also a privilege. Psalm 84, it was written by the, the sons of Korah. It's a psalm of uh, singing about the temple of God. Let me read just a couple of verses from Psalm 84, if you don't mind. It's not up on the screen. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh Sing for joy to the living God. So this psalm here, the opening stanzas, is their expression of joy to be at the temple, the place of God's dwelling for the people of God. So they're saying, my soul longs for the temple of God. And of course, the sons of Korah are priests and Levites. So you could imagine them writing these stanzas while standing in the courts of the temple. That's why the next phrase is so interesting. Psalm, 1, or psalm 84, verse 3. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow, a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at the altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. So as they're walking through the temple, the sons of Korah notice there's a bird's nest by the altar. What would you do if you saw a bird's nest? By the altar. You'd do what I do. You'd 
get the bird's nest out of here. It's wrecking the decor. But what the sons of Korah goes, look at that bird. What a fantastic place to have a nest in the courts of God's temple. That's what he said. Even the sparrow finds a place to raise your young. Where else would you want to raise your little young, your little birdies? Well, by the altar. What a fantastic place. And then look what he says, I think, alluding to the sparrow. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Who's singing? That little sparrow in the temple courts. And, and what the sons of Korah are saying is, what the end of our duty, at the end of our shift, at the end of our, our time of service, we've got to leave. We have to go home. But the sparrow, his nest is in here. He gets to stay in here. Oh, man, that, man, that is so cool. That, and, and it's that yearning. The best place to be is in the presence of God. And that's what, what Mary figured out at Martha's home. Why would I want to be anywhere else besides sitting at Jesus' feet, hearing him teach? Why would there be any other place that I would want to be other than sitting at Jesus' feet? couple other places I want to draw your attention to. Deuteronomy 8, chapter 3. This is really important when we think about Jesus. Moses said this about the work of God in the life of the people of Israel. God humbled you and let you hunger. He fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, Jesus, of course, quoted from Deuteronomy 8 when the devil tempted him to turn rocks into bread. And Jesus understood, you don't live by what you eat. You live by your connection with God. You are sustained by the Word of God. And John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, because Jesus is the Word of God, the bread of life. That's precisely what Jesus tells us in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 32. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, talking about manna, we just read about in Deuteronomy 8, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus says, the best place to be is the presence of God, that's me, and the best place to have life is not at your local restaurant, not where your bread is. The best place to have your life sustained is from the Word of God, Jesus himself. Verse 20, he said this earlier, don't work for food that perishes, but instead work for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is what Jesus said of himself, and Mary understood this. So Mary didn't need to scurry about. She understood the best place to be is with Jesus, and the place where she would be sustained is with Jesus. Now, before it gets too warm and fuzzy, let me read the offensive parts that Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. 
As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate, that is manna, and died. Whoever feeds on this bread, that is Jesus, will live forever. Jesus, the Word of God, is bread from heaven. He is the meal of life. Everyone needs Him. By putting our faith in Him, we receive Him for forgiveness of sin. So not only is Jesus what we need, He is also what we ought to desire. That meal which provides life as well as fullness and joy. Sometimes good isn't great, and it is great to be with Jesus because it is enjoyable to be with Jesus because it brings us life to be with Jesus and because he is the one who gives us fullness. Finally, this, it's great to be with Jesus because it is a fantastic act of defiance, a fantastic act of defiance. Sitting at Jesus' feet, being sustained by him alone is a defiant act against the curse of sin. Let me show you. Genesis chapter 3. If you don't know where Genesis chapter 3 is, go to the beginning of your Bible, go three chapters in, you found it. It's the third easiest chapter to find in your Bible. (laughs) The Lord had created all things, including man and woman, and he had given them instructions that they could eat from all the trees that he had planted and He said, just that one tree, don't eat from it. If you eat from that tree, you're going to die. Serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did the Lord say that? No, he didn't say that. He misquoted the Lord. God didn't say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. In fact, if you look back in Genesis 2, he actually said what? You can eat from every tree in the garden. This is what the devil does. He lives to make God seem like a cheapskate. He lives to convince you that God is holding out on you. That's what he lives to do. Have you ever thought God is holding out on you? Yes, you do. If you said no, you're lying. Now you have other sins to confess. That's what the devil does, tries to convince you God is holding out on you, that he's got good stuff he's not telling you about. So that's what he does here. He tries to convince Eve. God's holding out on you. You can't eat from any tree. Well, actually, yes, we can. We can eat from literally every tree, except for the one. She responds, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. God just simply said, don't eat from the tree in the midst of the garden. Don't touch it, lest you die. Again, a little bit of a misquote there. The serpent said this, his next act of deception. Number one, God is a cheapskate. Number two, he's not telling you the whole truth. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the lie of the garden is this. God is holding out on you, and there are plenty of good things you can have without having to wait for God for them. There's lots of good things in the Garden of Eden. The problem with all the trees in the Garden of Eden are you have to take that food from God's hand. And the devil points out to Eve... God is holding out on you, and there is food you can have without having to take it from God's hand. You can do it on your own. You have to deal with this God thing. And that's the great deception. God is a cheapskate, and it's not enjoyable to have to rely on him for the food we eat. 
And then what Mary does, sitting at Jesus' feet, is tell the devil, you're a liar. The best place to be is to take food that the Savior provides from his hand and know by faith there is nothing greater. That's the defiance, to sit at the feet of Jesus and tell the devil he's a liar. No, there's not somewhere else that's better. No, there's not other food that's better. If Jesus was serving oatmeal, that would be the best meal. Now, some of you are going, well, yeah, it, it would be. No, you're wrong. It, it wouldn't be the best meal if Jesus was serving prime rib. No, if Jesus serves the worst possible thing, it's the best thing because he is the bread of life. He is what sustains. Sometimes good isn't great, but the first thing we have to recognize and what Mary recognized is being with Jesus is great. There is nothing greater. And that's what the gospel comes to do. The gospel gives us good news that even though we rebelled against Jesus, even though we rebelled against God's commands and said, no, I want to do it my way because, God, I think you're holding out on me, and, God, I'm getting tired of having to trust you, God nonetheless made a way for us to rejoin him. In our rebellion, Jesus provides through his own flesh and blood the sacrifice that covers our sin, and through his resurrection gives us life that lasts forever with him. So we can finally, once again, have the greatest thing. Be able to sit at the feet of our Savior and receive from him the meal that is himself. Sometimes good isn't great. It is great to be with Jesus. Okay, let's go back to Luke chapter 10 since we're allegedly preaching from that passage and not the entire Old Testament today. So we've, uh, I think we've established, you may not believe me, I think we've established that being with Jesus is great. So what happens when something that is good, in fact, really, really good, gets in the way of being with Jesus? Sometimes good isn't great, and missing Jesus isn't great, even for good reasons. Sometimes good is, isn't great, because missing Jesus isn't great, even for good reasons reasons. Think of it this way, maybe. I don't know, it's kind of a bizarre way to think about it. It's the way that came to my mind. Say, for example, you're scuba diving, maybe scuba diving while spelunking. You're working your way through a cave. And you discover you're not going to be able to fit out the cave you came in. Maybe you ate too much when you were down there. And you've got to shed some gear. Okay, what, what kind of gear can you shed? You can get rid of your fins. Maybe you can get rid of your gear bag. Maybe you can get rid of the weights you might have. Maybe if necessary, you can shed your uh, wetsuit. But what's the one thing you're going to keep? You're probably your air tank. You're thinking, you know what? I could swim out of here faster without this pesky air tank and my fins on. Yeah, you, they'll recover your remains faster. <laughs> but the one thing you're not going to give up is what? You're not going to give up the air tank. That's the one thing you need. And that's what's happening is here is suddenly somebody has decided to, to give up the one thing that is needed for other things that aren't necessary. Doing good is good. Doing the right thing is, is the right thing. And doing good things and kind things uh, ought to be done. However, to do good things to the exclusion of knowing Jesus is not good. Now, those two things aren't mutually exclusive, of course, but... There are times, as we're going to see here in the life of Martha, where the good things that she wanted to do got in the way of being with Jesus. So what she was doing turned out to be not so good. 
One more thing we're going to learn here, and then we'll go through it. It's not good for me to do good things and not get Jesus. It's worse for me to do that to others. Now it's bad enough that I'm going to avoid Jesus by doing good things. It's worse for me to convince others they should be doing good things and missing Jesus. Sometimes good isn't great, and missing Jesus isn't great even for good reasons. Look at verse 40. Martha was distracted with much serving. So the author here, Luke, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us a point of view of Martha's service. He doesn't say Martha was busy with much serving. Martha Martha was diligent with much serving. What does it say? How does he assess Martha's behavior? Martha was distracted with much serving. So we understand there's a point of view on what she was doing. She was missing the point. Martha was doing what was needed. People got to have refreshments. People got to have food. She was doing what a host would have been expected uh, to do. She goes up to Jesus. Lord, listen to this. Do you not care? Have you ever prayed that one? Of course you have. Lord, don't you give a rep? Do you see what's going on, God? I don't know. Are you busy? Do you not see what's going on? So uh, Martha goes up to Jesus. She has a problem with her sister Mary that she is assuming is derelict. Not only that, Jesus is in on it, apparently. Jesus is in on the conspiracy to make Martha do all the work. And she's going to let Jesus know what she thinks of that. Jesus, do you not care? Now, first off, does Jesus care? Yes, he cares more than Martha does. Not about what Martha cares about, but he cares more than Martha does. But she's not feeling cared for for a number of reasons that maybe we'll have time to touch on. Do you not care? My sister has left me to serve alone. Now she makes her prayer request. Remember, when you're talking to God, you're praying, even when he's standing right there. Tell her then to help me. Now, this sounds like two siblings talking to their mom or their dad, doesn't it? Make Mary help. She is not hesitating about what she thinks Mary ought to be doing. Mary ought not to be sitting at Jesus' feet. She should be standing up and helping Martha do the duties of a host. In fact, Mary should know her place. Because there's something I hadn't mentioned yet that I wanted to save till this moment. When the Bible here says in verse 39, Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching, that's a little shocking. Who's supposed to be sitting at the Lord's feet listening to his teaching? That's where the men hang out. In the first century especially. That's for the guys. Women wouldn't typically be sitting at the feet of a rabbi. And Martha here wants Jesus to remind Mary she's forgotten herself. Mary thinks she's one of the boys. And Mary is supposed to be up, freshening up the iced tea. And Jesus, of course, agrees. Not, I'm kidding, she doesn't. You know, we read it early. He doesn't agree. This is really, really important because as we work our way through the book of Luke... One of his primary points is outsiders become insiders. And he covers a number of places where this is important. One of the primary places is Gentiles are not outsiders. Gentiles, by faith in Jesus, are insiders in the people of God. That's a 
critically important place, but he also covers other places where people are generally excluded. Uh, economic reasons. He says, no, no, no. Poor people are not outsiders. The, 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 the people of God are not merely wealthy people. We are not to create divisions based on economic or race or ethnicity. And here, importantly, because Luke is the only one who includes this account, he says we are not excluding based on gender. This is not a, a boys' club to follow Jesus. And he wants to make this clear. Mary is not in the wrong place. And in fact, he's going to make the point she's in exactly the right place. But Martha's accusing her sister of being derelict, misunderstanding her role as the sister of Martha. She should be up helping the men so they could stay focused on the learning from Jesus. And she's wasting her time just learning from Jesus herself. Not only does she accuse, uh, accuse uh, Mary of being uh, neglectful, she, she accuses Jesus of being neglectful as well. Look at verse 41. Jesus' response. First of all, Jesus ignores her accusation. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. Let's state some facts. You are anxious and troubled about many things. Fact. She is anxious and she is troubled about many things. Number one, food needs to get served properly. This is a home and I have a reputation. Number two, she is anxious with the fact that Mary is lazy. Martha's frustration is not because Jesus is doing something wrong. Martha is frustrated because she has an agenda and Jesus is not concerned enough about it. Martha has an agenda. Hospitality needs to be executed and done properly, and for it to be done properly, Mary needs to understand her place, and Jesus, you know how the world works, and you know who fits in what roles. Let's get this thing relined out the way it's supposed to be. The problem is, Martha has an agenda, and Jesus does not seem to be holding to that same agenda. Many things are troubling Martha, but one thing is necessary. What's the one thing that is necessary? He tells us, Mary has chosen the good portion, being with Jesus. I'm not taking that from her. Jesus now declares his agenda. If you want the bread of life, I will turn no one away. So Martha, I don't, you can accuse all day long, Mary is not going to get up because she has chosen the good portion. The one thing that is necessary those sitting at the feet of Jesus in that moment, the whole world could melt in a fireball. They would have the one thing that matters, life in Jesus. And Jesus tells Martha, I'm not taking that away from Mary at all. Martha's frustration was that Jesus did not agree that her agenda was the most important thing. Psalm 119, which is all about the Word of God, but I'm going to be get, read just a couple of verses. I'm not going to read the whole chapter of Psalm 119. It would take us... Till next Sunday. I'm beginning in verse 57. Heth. All of the stanzas of this section begin with that Hebrew letter. The Lord is my portion, he says. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. 
When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. The psalmist here says, the Lord is my portion. His words are my portion. I want to hear them. I want to be comforted by their graciousness, and I want to be directed by their commands. That's what the psalmist wants, which is precisely what Martha was seeking. I want the good portion, the word of the Lord himself, Jesus, with his words of encouragement and comfort and grace, along with his exhortations and commands to tell me who I am in him by faith and how he can transform me through obedience and faith together. And God says, Jesus says to Martha, this will not be taken from Mary. Sometimes good isn't great. Missing Jesus isn't great even for good reasons. As I mentioned in uh, the book of Luke, outsiders become insiders, and there were a number of community and cultural expectations that this little account upends. And I want to just draw your attention to a couple of places also in the book of Acts where Luke continues this agenda. This is a little bit off topic, but I get to do that. It's not really off topic. I just think it's important. Uh, let me begin here. Romans chapter 16, verse 3. Romans 16, verse 3. It's not up on the screen. It's a late ad. Jesus is greeting his co-workers, and he greets these two individuals in Romans 16, 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Have you heard of these, Priscilla and Aquila? Yeah, Priscilla was married to Elvis. And no, that's ridiculous. Priscilla and Aquila, fellow workers with Christ Jesus. These are those who served with Paul in the ministry of the gospel in a number of important places. And, and we meet these, uh, this couple in Acts chapter 18. Of course, Luke and Acts are companion books written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the uh, author Luke. With uh, carrying over into the books of Acts is that theme. Gentiles are in, slaves are in, and here again we see the important ministry of Priscilla and Aquila. Luke chapter 18 uh, verse 2, I don't know what passage, I'll get up to verse 26 in a minute, but you can feel free to read that. Paul found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently uh, come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see him because he was the same trade, and he stayed with them, that is Priscilla and Aquila, and he worked for them because they were tent makers uh, by trade. So here's what's important there in, in Acts chapter 18, verse 2 is he meets Aquila and he meets Priscilla and he listens. Here's the important thing. That is the only time where Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned that Aquila's name comes first. And the reason it's mentioned first there is because he, the, he met Aquila first. Then he met Priscilla. Everywhere else in the book of Acts, Priscilla's name comes first. And you say, well, so what? I'll tell you why. We're about to do some grammar up in here. And the people who are awake now are joining those who are asleep. In English, we know how a word is functioning based on where it lands in a sentence. Subject is normally at the beginning, then you got a verb, then you have an object. And you know where they land? Because of the order of the words in the sentence, right? Some of you just quadrupled the amount of grammar you know. It's fantastic. The teachers are in here saying, you don't know what you're talking about. Here's the thing about Greek, which is the original language that Acts was written in. 
The function of a word in a sentence is not based on its order. It's based on how it's spelled. If it's a subject, it's spelled one way. If it's a predicate, it's spelled another way. If it's a verb, it's spelled this way. If it's an object, it's spelled this way. That way, you can put the words in any order you want. And the reason you would change the order is you put the most important things at the beginning or at the end. Now, not everybody's agreed on exactly what it means that Priscilla and Aquila are always mentioned with Priscilla's name being first, but all Greek scholars agree it means something. At minimum, it means she was a co-partner with Paul and Aquila in the ministry. At minimum. In all likelihood, it indicated that in her relationships, she was likely the one most skilled in discipling and teaching. Doesn't mean Aquila wasn't involved. It means she just happened to have those spiritual gifts. So let's look down here at verse 24 in Acts chapter 18. A Jew named Apollos, native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man and handsome. He was a Jew. His name was Apollos, came from Alexandria. What was in Alexandria? Big old library? This dude was smart. And he was eloquent. He could read a phone book and people would get saved. That's how, now Paul, what we can say about Paul is he wasn't a trained speaker, that's what he says in, the, in his letters to Corinth, and we also know that he had a face for radio. Wasn't a pretty fella. You get stoned two or three times, it's going to happen. Apollos, on the other hand, is likely a handsome devil, and man, he could talk. But he wasn't home yet. He was an eloquent man. He had been instructed of the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Critically important here. They did not pull Apollos into a side room and have Aquila sit down with his discipleship material while Priscilla kept their lemonade full. That's not what's described here. You don't have Priscilla keeping the brownies on the plate and the cookies on the plate and making sure somebody doesn't need a little bit of refreshment. What you have here, the way this is written, is Priscilla and Aquila discipling and leading Apollos into a more robust and thorough understanding of the gospel. And this is what Acts is doing on purpose, is showing us that in Christ, all of us have a key function to be disciplers, drawing people closer into the presence of Jesus. Martha missed that in that moment when she saw Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. In that moment, she got trapped in her normal cultural understanding and said, no, 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 that's for the boys. And Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit through the book of Acts says, no, 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 this is for all of us. To be calling others into closer relationship with Jesus, don't miss the best thing because the culture tells us otherwise. So the question is, back into Mar Martha and Mary's story, what should Martha have done in that moment? What should Martha have done with all that business? What, what, would, what should she have done in that moment? She should have sat down at the feet of Jesus. That was the best thing in that moment, isn't it? Don't miss Jesus. The question is, where would we get food? What if somebody gets thirsty? What if somebody needs some oil for their hair? Where, what, how are these things going to be handled 
if Martha doesn't do them? Well, this is where the act of trust is. Does Jesus have a history of providing food adequately? I can think of at least two times where he had fed 5,000 people with a little bit of bread. So what that is, it's an act of saying, you know what, I trust Jesus has this. He can handle that stuff. I'm not going to miss the best thing, presence with Christ, to make sure people have dinner. The better thing in this moment is to find Jesus. Sometimes good isn't great. It is great to be with Jesus, and missing Jesus isn't great, even for good reasons. Okay, we'll close with this. Um, it's great to be with Jesus. Do we agree? Eh, casually. We agree because we're in church. I mean, we say no. How, do we, how are we with Jesus? Really, real simple. We go to church. We gather together with other believers. We go to home group. We gather together with other believers. Go to a life group or even get a couple of guys or uh, ladies you spend time with. Uh, hop on some bikes or go down the river, whatever. You hang out with other believers. That's one of the ways we experience the presence of Christ is by gathering together and sharing a life, our life with one another. Obviously, we interact and encounter Christ through his word, through the scripture, by spending time personally reading his scripture, by uh, listening to it taught uh, here or on the radio or on the interwebs. We encounter Christ through prayer, where we lay before him our needs, where we let him know how, much, how grateful we are for his work in our life, when we come to him for his grace and forgiveness when our sin seems insurmountable. We experience Jesus when we uh, serve others, when we understand what we ought to do like Priscilla and Aquila did when they encountered Apollos. In Acts chapter 2, we read what it looked like for a group of believers to encounter Jesus together in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to fellowship, to breaking of bread and prayer. Awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. All who believed together had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and distributing the proceeds to those who had need, and they did this day by day, gathered in the temple. They broke bread in their homes. They received food with glad and generous hearts, and they praised God for his favor. This was a a group of people that wouldn't normally have been gathering together. Because earlier in Acts chapter 2, this sermon was proclaimed to people who spoke in various languages. These would have been Gentiles and Jews, those from all over the world. So what we have to recognize from the Scripture, if we think spending time with Jesus isn't that great, the problem isn't because Jesus isn't great. The problem is because our taste for that which is great has been tainted. That's, that's what happens. When, when the thought of spending time with Jesus with his people and his word and his prayer, when that seems dull and uninspiring, the issue is not the means by which we encounter Christ. The issue is our heart has, has lost its taste for the, the finer things of life. The finest thing of life is knowing Jesus. We ought to look for ways to make sure that our palate stays attuned to the greatness of spending time with Jesus. Next thing. I only have 12. Anybody have any pet peeves? I've mentioned one of mine is the way in which most of you drive on the freeway. It's not a pet peeve, it's just truth. But what is a pet peeve? We look at this with Martha. What's your pet peeve? When people don't help. It's a pet peeve. 
That's this idea of being worried and anxious about many things. It's, it's these things that really bother us. Maybe they don't bother other people. In fact, it bothers us that they don't bother other people. Maybe we could say it this way as a community of believers. A focus on things that I prefer leads to anxiousness about things that aren't Jesus. A focus on preferences among the body of believers that aren't Jesus leads us to anxiousness about things that aren't Jesus. Let me put it this way, the way I think Jesus was communicating it to Martha. Jesus is better than things being the way you think they ought to be. Jesus is better than things in the church or in your home. Jesus is better than all the things being the way you think they ought to be. Think about it this way. If everything in your home went the way you think it ought to go, that would be a miracle. Let's just pretend it did. Let's just pretend everything goes exactly the way you think they ought to go. The people around you finally figure, it, figure out you've been right all along. And finally, everybody is stepping to the way they're supposed to. And things are going precisely the way they ought to go. That is not as satisfying as Jesus. And say one day you actually turned up to this church and we weren't as, no, as annoying as normal. And I finally preached a sermon that you could understand. And Seth finally picked all your favorite songs. And the air conditioning was set precisely to the temperature that you wanted it set to. And the chairs were perfectly comfortable. And finally they figured out how to run the vacuum. Whatever it is that bothers you. I don't know what it is that bothers you. I'm giving you ideas. My email is... Jeff at, <laughs> if everything was the way you wanted it, it wouldn't be as good as Jesus. And in fact, most of the time, when everything's the way we want it, we decide we don't need Jesus. One of the things that spurs us toward Jesus is the fact that things aren't the way we want them to be. We can hold on to our pet thieves and be worried and anxious about many things, but we will miss the great thing, being with Jesus. Finally this, what's the mission of the church? Get all the people as close to Jesus as possible. That's the mission for each one of us, men, women. What's the mission? Get all people as close to Jesus as possible. We don't want to create obstacles that keep people from having the one thing they need, which is Jesus. We can be worried and anxious about many things, but the one thing we need to be spurred on to is to communicate how much Jesus loves people. He loved us enough to die for us on the cross. Sometimes good isn't great. It's great to be with Jesus, and don't miss Jesus for lesser things. God, we thank you for your kindness that you have shown us in your word. And God, we have to admit now that in all likelihood, most of us want a relationship with Jesus, but we would like you to fit in to what we got going on. We want you to fit into our agenda, what we want to have happen at work or in our home or in our family or in our relationships with our neighbors. And what you have come here to do is not to figure out how you fit into our life, but instead you came here to give us life. 
And God, many of us are not in open rebellion against you, but we are so distracted and anxious and worried about so many things, we're missing you. God, would you in this moment give us the joy of having our hearts set aside all that stuff and not miss the thing. Sitting at your feet and hearing words of hope that you save sinners like us. God, I do pray for those who are here today who don't know you that in this moment they would see Jesus. That he offers grace, truth, and forgiveness for all who would receive by faith. God, we would pray each one of us that you would move in our hearts to be those who seek opportunity to draw people closer to Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for being here with us this morning. Our hope is, God, you are glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand up as we close with a song?